The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me now as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help? Father in heaven, we sung the words, Jesus is better. So enliven our hearts to feel that, to be able to say that, that Jesus is better than anything else in all the world. Incline our hearts to your truth so that we would hear it and that it would change us. Open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law so that it might bring us joy and satisfy us this morning. Convict us by your spirit so that we would be increasingly conformed into the image of your son, Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Sometimes when I give a wedding homily, I like to talk about the three rings in marriage. You may have heard this before. There's the engagement ring, and then the wedding ring, and then the third ring is the suffering. And we, we sort of laugh because there is a half-truth there. Marriage is not easy. It requires work and labor. And God has given us instructions in his word this morning for marriage. And this morning we come to a text that has beautiful truths for us to see and to celebrate the, and put into practice. Marriage can be hard, but it is for our good and for our joy. And so Peter outlines this morning the high and holy calling of believing wives and husbands. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just transform our behavior on Sunday morning from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock, but it transforms all of life, even into this sphere of marriage. If you'll remember, Peter has moved from the political sphere to the social sphere and now to this most intimate of spheres of marriage. And a marriage, you can imagine, would have been all that much more complicated in Greco-Roman society if one of the two spouses converted to Christianity. What would we do with the kids? What about our social circle? Would one spouse go to worship? Would both? What would we do about the other gods we used to worship or one of the spouses used to worship? You can imagine all of the complexity. And so Peter writes into that context and gives instructions for believing wives and for believing husbands. And the main point of our passage this morning is that believing wives and believing husbands are to hope in God and to let that hope reflect into this most intimate of relationship, into their marriage, into how they conduct themselves and how they care for and relate to their spouse. Your hope, your vertical relationship with the Lord is to manifest horizontally. We've seen this week after week. We fear the Lord and so we obey government institutions. We fear the Lord as servants and so we obey our masters and now again, because of our fear of the Lord, we conduct ourselves a certain way in our relationships. In a world full of brokenness, and you don't have to look far to find the sexual and marital brokenness in our world of polygamy, of pornography, 
same-sex marriage, abuse and manipulation, and rampant divorce. God gives us this morning a beautiful picture of how men and women are both equal in dignity and worth and made to flourish in differing yet complementary roles and responsibilities. And this passage has at least three aims for us this morning that I think are important to highlight. He wants us first to represent Christ well. If a wife converted to Christianity, he doesn't want Christianity to get a bad name. If a husband converts to Christianity, he doesn't want Christ to get a bad name. And so our conduct, believing wives and husbands, are to reflect into the surrounding society and culture in such a way where they're faithful to Christ and yet preserving that marital bond. So he wants marriages, Christian marriages, even if only one spouse is Christian, to represent Christ well. The second is there's salvation in view. He writes to wives that those who do not obey, your husbands, your unbelieving husbands, would be won without a word. And so he has in view this stunning reality that your actions and attitude and conduct as a believing wife would have apologetic and evangelistic power in your home. And then the third is that he writes these things for our joy. These are not burdensome commands. These are written for our joy. They aren't easy, but nothing worth doing is easy. These are the high and holy callings for those who have their identity in Christ, who have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. For those people who are called a royal priesthood, who've been rescued out of darkness into God's marvelous light, this is how we're to relate to one another, especially in the context of marriage. And our outline is going to be verses 1 through 6. We're going to look at a word for believing wives. And then verse 7, a word to believing husbands, and then some application at the end. I want to give just a few more preliminary words. If you're a single person this morning, perhaps you're unmarried, perhaps you're a child or a youth, maybe you're divorced, a widow or a widower, this is still an important word for each and every single one of us because none of our lives are unaffected by marriage. I can still think back on how my parents' marriage that was healthy yet imperfect shapes my understanding of marriage today. Not only that, there is beauty here in this passage to highlight and display the distinctiveness of manhood and womanhood. Those are not bad words. God has made us equal and yet distinct. In our DNA booklet, Bethlehem's DNA booklet, we write these words. We believe singles are integral members of our church and community. We rejoice in the unique way that singleness celebrates the sufficiency of Christ. So you're no less a Christian. You're no less a disciple of Jesus Christ if you're single this morning. We're glad you're here. And this word is for all of us. Second is that we all have imperfect marriages. And my prayer this morning is that God's word will bring hope and healing to all the broken marriages that we have. I can imagine even this morning we have severely broken marriages. Perhaps you're watching online 
Maybe your unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife is sitting next to you, watching with you, or perhaps here in the room. I readily recognize that we have divorces pending and children that are hurting. And my prayer this morning is that God's word would be a balm to your soul and a healing effect upon your marriage. I'm reminded just how broken every marriage is. Just even this week, as I was preparing for a number of things at work in my home office, which is just my bedroom, and kids were popping in and out, I got frustrated for one moment. And so all of that frustration came out towards my wife. And so I had to apologize for my angry and frustrated outburst. And then later, I texted her and I said, What did I say? I said, it's ironic since I'm studying the passage right now of living with my wife in an understanding way. And she texted back, well, did you need a sermon illustration? And then a little winking emoji. So that illustration's courtesy of my wife. We are all people with broken and imperfect marriages. And so no matter how healthy you may be this morning or how broken you may be, God has a word for each and every single one of us this morning. Lastly, it doesn't take a biblical scholar to see six verses written to women and one verse written to men. And you might be thinking, what gives? It's unbalanced, uneven. I think there's two reasons, maybe more. Peter has focused his instructions thus far on those who have less power and who therefore would be more vulnerable, which is what Peter's readers would have experienced. They are in the marginalized kind of outskirts of society position. And so now he's writing to wives who would have been more vulnerable in marriage. It parallels the experience of his readers. Last week, he wrote to servants, but not masters, whereas Colossians writes to both. The second is Peter is giving direct instruction to wives, not channeling it through their husbands. And so this would have been a sign and symbol of affirmation and encouragement. You are disciples of Jesus Christ. You can receive direction directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a beautiful priesthood of all believers. And so for Peter to write directly to wives is putting them forward as co-heirs of the grace of life, which we'll explain later. Now, verses one through six can be broken up into three parts. A call for submission in verses one and two, an explanation of right conduct in three and four, and then an example of holy women in verses five and six. Look with me at verses one and two. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This command is for wives to humbly submit to the authority and leadership of their husbands. The use of the word likewise at the beginning harkens all the way back to probably chapter 2 verse 18 where it says to servants you're to be subject but with all respect or literally with all fear. And as we looked at already they're not to fear their masters but they're to fear God. And in the same way, wives are not to fear their husbands, but they're to fear God in that same way with all respect. This is literally translated with all fear, not of her husband, but in reverence to God. This submission flows not from inequality, 
or any incompetency, but rather out of reverence for God's good and beautiful design for marriage. This submission is grounded in Christ's relationship with the church. Talks more about that in Ephesians 5, and we won't read that this morning, but it's the There's a difference here from where we talked about slaves. That was a human sinful institution. And other gospel writers suggest it should be done away with. Marriage is God's design. Men and women made in the image of God, equal in dignity and worth, and yet with distinct roles and responsibilities. Wives are to humbly submit to the loving and sacrificial leadership of their husbands like Christ, like the church submits to Christ. But to prevent any unnecessary confusion, let me say what Peter's not saying here. It's not all women are subject to all men. Wives are to be subject to their own husbands, not anyone else's. Peter's also not saying that husbands and wives are somehow unequal in God's eyes. He's not suggesting inferiority or inequality or lesser standing. He's explicit about that later. They're co-heirs of the grace of life, equally made in God's image. The submission is not absolute. She is to fear God more than she fears or reveres her husband. She's to obey God more than she obeys her husband. And so it's not absolute. She's not to follow her husband into sin. She's not to abandon Christ. She's not to leave Christ behind in order to follow her husband's gods. In a Greco-Roman world of Peter's day, most wives would have followed their husband's gods. This would have been normative. And yet what Peter writes here is so stunning and countercultural. No, you don't follow your husband into idolatry. You follow Jesus because he alone is Lord of Lords. Your allegiance stays with Lord Jesus Christ. You submit to him first and foremost, but you don't tear apart that marriage either. Submit, sustain that under fear and reverence of God. The purpose of this submission is that even if your husband does not obey the word, which means they're an unbeliever, they're disobedient to God's commands, that they might be won without a word. There's this stunning picture of one's behavior whose fear and trust is in God, who's hoping in God, so that there might be a God-fearing evangelistic power that's exerted. Same thing Peter said in chapter two, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might glorify God on the day of visitation. And in that same way, believing wives with unbelieving husbands are to live in such a way so that their husbands, Lord willing, under God's sovereign hand would be won without a word. The conduct and attitude to win over this husband is to not to badger or to manipulate or to, to be a doormat or to be passive or passive aggressive. She's not to nag or undermine, but her attitude of steadfastness and trust in God will communicate a type of beauty and dignity and strength. Can you imagine a wife who wants to see change in her unbelieving husband? And if she believes that 
This change is not going to happen except when she exerts some force, then she'll manipulate, then she'll nag, then she'll plant seeds all over the place. And that's not to say that you shouldn't do some of those things of planting seeds and, and, and creating opportunities, but what Peter's talking about is trust in God. Put your hope in him above all else so that there would be a fearlessness that flows from faith in how you relate and even submit to your husband. Now look with me at verses three and four where he goes to explain this pure and right conduct. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, this doesn't mean everyone who showed up this morning with earrings and nice clothes is somehow in sin and everyone watching from home sitting in your pajamas is more holy. It's not what we're saying. These verses are emphasizing not just cultivating your external appearance. The NASB tries to clarify what this is meant when it says, let not your adornment be merely external. This is very similar to Proverbs 31:30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's right. So Peter's not banning nice hair or nice clothes or jewelry altogether. But what he is saying is that while external beauty might draw attention to yourself or might conceal blemishes like makeup might do, the thing we ought to place our attention on, women, wives, is cultivating the inner beauty of faith, of steadfastness, of gentleness, and of holiness. Are you a woman who is fearless, full of faith, hoping in God? Doesn't mean you have to look frumpy, but it means let's put our attention on following Jesus, trusting in him above all else. They are to cultivate an imperishable beauty that flows from the hidden inner person of the heart. He's saying external beauty, it fades. It might last for a few decades, but it eventually goes away. But this inner beauty that wives cultivate, it will last forever as you're conformed into the image of Christ. Last week, we mentioned Linda Oatley, one of our global partners, and she passed this week. And we talked about how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And how beautiful are those who develop and cultivate an imperishable beauty in fearless faith and hope and trust in God. Now, would Hollywood put Linda Oatley on the cover of magazines and in movies? Well, probably not, and probably not for any of us. And yet, Christian women don't take their cues mainly from Hollywood, which is propped up with plastic surgery. But we take our cues from God, and he calls women Wives, to cultivate a precious, valuable, great worth in God's sight, which is a heart of faith, of hope, and a cultivated inner beauty characterized by fearless submission. Now, let me say a word about quiet and gentle spirit right at the end there. I think some women 
sometimes often struggle with that particular phrase. They think I'm a little bit more blunt and wouldn't be considered quiet in, in any context. Uh, and Peter's not talking about personality. Peter is talking about a disposition of faith. It's not personality that he's trying to shape. He wants your faith to be shaped. Are you someone who exhibits a peaceable nature, who avoids unnecessary fights and conflicts and refuses to harbor a bad temper? Christian wives are to please God with their conduct and not their clothes, with their virtue and not their visual appearance, with their attitude and not their attire. This is the call. Now he turns in verses five and six to give an example of these holy women. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, Peter gives an example of these holy women. It's likely that he's referencing not just Sarah, but all of the wives of the patriarchs. So Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And they're known for two things, hoped in God and submitted to their husbands. Now, if you read any of the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you don't walk away and think, wow, these were just the godliest men in the world who made all the right decisions. It must've been really easy to submit to them. No, not at all. When you read about the patriarchs, you think, wow, God really used broken, sinful people. And that's what we're supposed to see. In the midst of that, Sarah still trusted in God. All of these women are the holy women of old. She's like the first lady, in a sense, of the Christian faith. And the curious phrase in these verses is she calls Abraham Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, she says that in Genesis 18, 12. This is the story of when an angel came to Abraham and says, this time next year, Sarah's gonna be pregnant and you're gonna have a baby. And Sarah laughs. The ESV puts it very delicately. It says, the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. Sarah knew without a doubt, this is a total impossibility. It's not going to happen. She's 90 years old. And Abraham, he's 100. She knows better than anyone else, it's definitely not happening with Abraham. And she could have said, fat chance, Abraham is old as dirt. She doesn't say that. What does she say? She says, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So Sarah, in the midst of what she thinks is completely absurd, ridiculous in her mind at that moment, if it weren't for God, she uses a term of dignity and respect showing honor to her husband. That's what Peter's pointing out, this attitude and conduct. God loves the beautiful cultivation of a fearless faith in him. Wives are to be fearless, even in the face of an unbelieving husband, so that they might be won without a word. Wives are called to a fearless faith, full of hope, characterized by a quiet and gentle spirit that is pleasing and precious in God's sight. So Peter is giving instructions to wives this morning saying, don't take your cues from the world. Don't even take your cues from your husband. Though he might be unbelieving, he might be harsh, he might be good. It really doesn't matter. 
At the end of the day, fear and revere God above all else and trust in him and then cultivate the inner beauty that God sees as precious. This is the high and holy calling of women who trust in God more than in circumstances, more than in husbands, more than in anything else around them. They're trusting in God. Cultivate that faith. So for wives this morning, are you diligently cultivating your inner spiritual beauty, which in God's sight is very precious? Do you give time and attention to that? With our culture's emphasis on external beauty, do you vote time and attention to cultivating the hidden person of the heart? You could ask probably a number of diagnostic questions, but do you spend more time on makeup or nice clothes or decorating one's house or whatever else, all fine things more than we spend our time reading God's word and in prayer and hospitality and loving fellow saints? Are you submitting to your husband, for those who have husbands, with faith-filled fearlessness, hoping in God? Now, I want to turn to the husbands. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers might not be hindered. Peter again begins with likewise, with all respect or in fear. Husbands are to have that same attitude of fearing God and not fearing man. And he's talking to believing husbands and he makes no distinction between unbelieving or believing wives or wife. And the reason for that is because it would have been normative, would have been normal for a wife to go along with her husband. So this is true whether you have an unbelieving wife or a believing wife. And they're to live with their wives in an understanding way. This could be translated very literally according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? I think there could be kind of two senses of that. Certainly knowledge of God's will for them, but more specifically knowledge of your wife. All women are different. You are to live with your wife in an understanding way, according to your knowledge of her. Maybe just to illustrate that, when Stephanie and I started dating, I quickly learned that she liked flowers, but didn't love them. And so if it was between a nice meal and flowers, it was always a nice meal. If it was between chocolate, dark chocolate and flowers, it was always dark chocolate. And so very quickly I stopped buying flowers and saved a lot of money and spent a lot of money on meals and dark chocolate. And, and just a word for husbands, if you do all three, you can't lose, right? Um, but it, it required learning about my wife to know what her preferences were. Husbands, what does your wife need from you? What are her fears and dreams? How are you doing in showing non-sexual physical affection? How about stepping in with discipline for young kids or tasks around the house? Do you understand your wife and her desires and preferences and struggles? Are you listening? Are you asking questions? In Ephesians 5, Husbands are, called to, are told to nourish and cherish their wife in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So husbands, you've been given authority and leadership, but you're not to wield that 
in order to demean or intimidate or lord it over, but you're to use it in order to learn and to love and to sacrifice like Christ loved the church. This is the high and holy calling of husbands. You've been given leadership, but how are you to use it? Well, he goes on to explain, honor the weaker vessel, showing honor as the weaker vessel. So what does that mean? Well, I think what Peter's pointing at is that women in general are physically weaker relative to a man's strength. And there's exceptions to this, but it's generally true. Nowhere in the New Testament does it ever say that women are weaker emotionally, intellectually, morally, or spiritually. An argument can be made that women have strengths in a number of these areas. Men have strengths in a number of these areas, which is why we need one another to complement each other. I read this whole sermon to my wife last night and said, show me where I'm missing it or where I'm going to step in something because I need your help. The image that most comes to mind is women are like fine china or a crystal bowl. They need to be treated with greater tenderness and gentleness. Otherwise, you're going to chip that fine piece of china. Whereas men, we're a five-gallon bucket from Home Depot. We don't We're not real pretty, but we get the job done. And this isn't to denigrate either sex. It's just to show that we're different in how God has made us. Sinful men have distorted texts like this that we've looked at already, verses one to six. They've lorded it over their wives. They've ignored verse seven, minimized it, and have used it to abuse or to intimidate. That has no place in the church whatsoever. There's nothing in this passage this morning that would condone, encourage, or excuse abuse, domination, intimidation, control, or mistreatment of any kind, verbal, emotional, financial, or physical. In fact, this text is a really gentle exhortation to men to treat their own wife with tenderness and understanding. Look with me, it says, since they are co-heirs with you, they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The ground or the reason he gives for husbands to show their wives honor is twofold. First, they are co-heirs with you. They are going to receive this future inheritance that we've spent weeks and weeks talking about. They are equal in God's sight, in the kingdom of God. We will all receive the same thing. What does that mean? It means that your wife is a daughter of the most high king. How are you treating God's daughter? I have two daughters and I can't imagine someday some snot-nosed kid is gonna come and ask me for permission. And I can't imagine giving permission for them to date one of my daughters. And I'm sure in some ways God feels a little bit the same way. And so husbands, we have a high and holy calling to use the authority, to use the leadership that we've been given in order to love and to honor in the way that God would demand of his children, of his sons. Second, it says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you do not treat your wife well, God will not listen to you. This is a stunning, a stunning word of warning. It's sobering. It should make every man in the room fearful. God will not listen. 
If you do not show your wife honor, if you abuse, intimidate, or run roughshod over your wife, God's daughter, he will not hear your prayers. It says next week, in the passage next week, 1 Peter 3.12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, which means he's gonna close off his ear to their prayers. For those who do evil, I don't wanna hear it. God does not bless or give favor to those who abuse their God-given authority but rather use your authority and leadership and strength to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And I wanna just say a word to the men this morning. If you're dabbling or indulging in pornography this morning, you need to kill it. This is such a rampant, horrific reality in our world and even in the church. And you need to put it to death. You need to do whatever it takes to put it to death. Get together with other men, Tell someone, accountability software, you need to kill it. This does not honor your body, which is Christ's temple. It does not honor the marriage bed, and it does not honor your wife. I shudder to think that some of us are prayerless because of sin in our lives such as that. So husbands, are you living with your wife in an understanding way? Do you know more about hunting and fishing and boating and the latest on ESPN or your golf game more than you know about your wife? Do you really listen? I would encourage you, husbands, find time to humbly listen, to ask how you're doing, not to respond in defensiveness and then to bring that before the Lord. Christian men are to look to God for their hope and strength. These are high and holy callings for both men and women. And without God's strength, neither sex could do it. But only with God's help, when we put our hope and trust in him, knowing that we have an inheritance, knowing that we've been born again to a living hope, knowing that we've been rescued out of darkness, now basking in his marvelous light, knowing that Jesus died so that we would die to sin and we would do what? We would live to righteousness Every believer has been given God's spirit so that we can now, imperfectly, yes, but carry these commands out with our hope and faith and trust in God above all else. And husbands, you have the model in the person of Jesus Christ. That is your holy and high calling. As we seek to come to a close, I wanna say a few other things. I imagine this morning and on the live stream as you're watching, there's a number of wives who have unbelieving husbands. That's probably more common than the other way around. And I wanna say a word to you wives who have unbelieving husbands. Maybe he's sitting next to you. Maybe he hasn't been, church, been to church in decades. Take heart, trust in the Lord. Do not fear what may be fearful. The Lord Jesus Christ sees you, hears you, and he calls you to put your hope and trust in him, continuing to cultivate the hidden inner person of the heart with pure conduct. Your church is here as your extended family. And I would challenge and exhort 
believing men, godly believing men, and I know we have many here in this room and watching from home, for some of us, make it our mission to engage those husbands who do not yet know Jesus. For husbands and wives, resist the temptation to mainly think as you go from here, yeah, my spouse has really dropped the ball and hasn't fulfilled these things. Mainly think about how is God speaking to me and how I ought to carry these things out. Husbands, how is God convicting you on how you ought to treat your wife? Don't mainly focus on where she's letting you down. And wives, same thing. How is God convicting you of how you ought to treat your husband? Do not deflect this text or minimize your sin or focus solely on your spouse's failures and their failure to live up to them. Our earthly marriages are all imperfect, but it's stunning that God allows each and every single imperfect Christian marriage to reflect the beauty and majesty and glory of Christ and the church. Jesus Christ came from heaven, lived a perfect life, rescued his bride while his bride was wayward, still in sin, like a prostitute. That's the whole story of Gomer and Hosea. He rescued her out of darkness. And that's who we are. We are that prostitute. God rescued us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we would be his people. And we, in all of our imperfection, get to reflect this glorious beauty that Christ has come and he is gathering for himself a beautiful bride. And on that day, he will call this bride what? spotless, without blemish. Can you imagine how beautiful the church will be on that day? And he's doing it right now as we are increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And we get to work that out in these relationships that we have. Wives and how you relate to your husband. Husbands and how you love your wife. That's not separated from your sanctification and growing in Christ-likeness. This is God's place for you to work that out in your marriage. I don't care how much of the New Testament you have memorized. If you don't love your wife or wives, if you're not humbly submitting to your husband, we don't want to get that disconnected where we're all cerebral and we fail in the places that matter and that we're told really matter precious in God's sight, where your prayers will not be heard. And so I am praying, I'm praying that God would do a work in hundreds of marriages this morning, that there would be renewed joy, that there would be renewed laughter, that there would be a renewing of mutual delight between husbands and wives and wives and husbands because God has designed this union for our joy and for our flourishing. And so that the world might even say, I don't believe all that you believe, but I've seen how you treat your wife and I see how she responds to you. It's so beautiful. Tell me how to have that. There is an apologetic and evangelistic power to how we carry out in our marriages. And I am praying that we would be a people who display that beauty of complementarity, 
that wives full of faith, hoping in God, would live out fearless submission to their husbands. And husbands full of faith, hoping in God, would lead with love, showing honor, and living with their wives according to knowledge. Pray with me to that end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would do that work in and through us for your glory. We long for Christ to be exalted and for your name to not be dishonored, not to be maligned, but to be seen as precious, that Jesus is in fact better. May all of our marriages scream and display that Jesus is in fact better. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.